Father, I want to thank you uh, for bringing us here this evening. And I ask, Lord, that you would guide us through this text, Lord, a, a familiar event, a familiar account, and I would imagine a familiar text to, to most Christians and even to those who aren't Christians, Lord. Um, and I ask, Lord, that you would help us to understand it, Lord, that we would, um, that we would ultimately see you in the text, Lord. Um, please guide us through it. And Lord, speak to us. May we be ready to hear what it is that you have to say, Lord. And then by your Holy Spirit, change us and and help us to live that out. Um, So Lord, we want to thank you, um, first and foremost, for dying on a cross um, so that we could have this opportunity to to know you and to walk with you. Um, So please guide us and bless our time this evening, Jesus. Amen. Exodus. Exodus is a story of redemption. Uh, And last week we saw this redemption take place, if you remember. God demonstrated his power and might to the Israelites, to the Egyptians, and ultimately to the whole world as he miraculously brings the nation out of Egypt. And we see... And if we, uh, which we didn't get a chance to see actually last week. Last week we saw we focused mainly on the ten plagues and the final Passover lamb as well. Um, but if we were to have continued through the text, we would have seen the parting of the Red Sea and how in front of their very eyes, God completely takes down the pursuing Egyptian army. And the Israelites are safely to the other side. They watch as their enemy, their slave masters, are washed up dead and defeated on the shore. It says this in Exodus 14, chapter 14 and verse 30, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and his servant, Moses. God has saved his people, but although they are physically free, they're not yet, they're not yet living free. And so God will once again come down, once again meet with his people. This time, it is to give them the law. Thousands of years ago, God gave rules to his people and many of those rules still apply to us. And although he gave hundreds and hundreds of different laws to his people, it seems that it appears that he sets apart ten commands which, which summed up the, maybe the essence of all of them. The ten commands which, which laid the foundation for the others, and they are commonly known as the ten commandments, And for the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at these commands. And and what we'll see is, is they're kind of really split into two kind of halves. The first half of the Ten Commandments, kind of the first four commands, mainly focus on our relationship with God. How do we interact with God? And then the remaining six will then kind of focus on how we then relate and we act uh, and respond to other people. And it's amazing how God does that. Uh, often, I think, when he calls us to know him, it is first of all we know him vertically, we work on that relationship, and as that relationship is solid with him, that enables us to truly then love people um, 
vertically. Um, and as we go through these next couple of weeks, I want you to, to, to keep this phrase in mind, which is set free to live free. And the purpose of God's, light, God's law is, is, to, is to give us life. He's not trying to kill our joy, but rather he's trying to protect it. And what you'll see is we've, they've now been set free. They've been set free, free from slavery, but now God wants them to live free, to no longer be enslaved by the practices of sin, but instead to be guided by the wisdom of God. And I believe the same is true of of us, that when Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, it was to set us free from the slavery of sin so that we could be free to love him and to walk with him as he's called us to. So let's begin to look at these commandments. And first of all, we need to set the scene, understand the context of what's been happening. Um, So as we briefly looked at, Israel have been set free um, from slavery in Egypt. God has brought them out and has led them into the wilderness towards the promised land. He has miraculously provided for them daily through manna and water from a rock. So God is literally providing for them while they are in a desert. And they come to Sinai and encamp at the foot of the mountain. And little did they know, once again, they're going to have this amazing encounter with God. Exodus chapter 19 and verse 16 says this. So Exodus 19 and verse 16 says this. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. And then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke. And God answered him in the thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. What what an awe-inspiring demonstration of of God and, and all his might and all his power. God literally comes down and meets with man. I want you to take note that God is the one who is initiating God chooses to reveal himself to his creation and he wants us to see that he is different. He's not like us. He is holy. He is set apart and he is powerful. And yet, this powerful, almighty God wants a relationship with his people. So he comes down and it is from this mountain that God will speak to his people and it's on this mountain that he will give them, speak to them, the Ten Commandments. So let's briefly read through them and they're found in Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. And it says this, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. 
You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the Lord take the sorry, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, six days You shall labour and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God on it. You shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. That's what we're going to focus on today. But let's just briefly read the rest of those. It says, verse 12, Honour your father and mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbour. You shall not covet your neighbour's house, you shall not covet your neighbour's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbours. The very, before God gives the very first commandment, and I hope you noticed it, he, he, he kind of gives a summary. He says this, verse 1. So before he's given any commandment, he says, he says this, and God spoke to, he spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Before God gives them any command, he reminds them of who he is and what he has done. You see, who you understand God to be will affect how you respond to his commands. If you see him as some really distant cosmic dictator you will see his rules as merely as an attempt to kill your joy but the truth is much greater because God is not distant but rather he is personal he says when he says that I am the Lord your God he is not a dictator but rather he is a loving father and I'm not sure about obviously about your individual family situations I know for many people many people, their fathers have failed them or abandoned them and we grow up in a world where some people don't even know their father. But God is different. God is our ultimate father. The father that we always wanted. And we're all kind of old enough to know that a good dad is one who gives his children rules. A good father gives his children rules not because he doesn't love them but rather because he loves them and he wants the best for them. A a dad saying to his five-year-old son, 
no, you cannot have the keys to the car to drive down to the shop, is not being, he's not like this, this, he's not being a killjoy, he's not, you know, it's, it's not like we would turn to that dad and be like, man, that dad is so cruel, he is so, man, he's just so restricting on his kids, it's like, that's, that's obviously not the case. He, he sets those boundaries, he sets those rules in place for the sake of the child, for the flourishing of the child, and, and the same is true of us and God. It's amazing how we kind of, we, think, we end up thinking God is, you know, we, we kind of forget that he is a father, and he knows more than us, and he's smarter than us, and he knows how life works, and he knows how life should work. So whenever we come to a crossroads, whenever we're going through his word, and God clearly says one thing, but we think another, he is not the one who should be changing, we are the ones who should be changing. Our vision is limited just as, or even more so than a child's vision is limited compared to his father. So that's the first thing we need to remember. The second thing he reminds us is, or he, rather he reminds them, is how he brought them out of slavery in Egypt. And this, this is so important. God sets them free before he gives them the law. God demonstrates his love for them way before he asks anything of them. And that is the heart of the Christian faith. First John in chapter 4.19 says this, We love because he first loved us. God doesn't say, do these things, then I will love you. But Rabbi says, I love you. And he says, will you follow me? After reminding the people of these two important truths of who he is and what he's done, it's only then that he gives them the commandment. And he starts with the most important one, which all the others rest upon. The reason we struggle to keep the others is because we struggle to keep this one. Verse 3, we read, we read this. It said this, You shall have no other gods before me. It's pretty simple, right? God says, I want you to put me first in your life. I want to be the most important thing. And at first glance, we could think, well, maybe that sounds, uh, you know, that sounds a bit selfish. Like, well, why, should, why, should, why should I put God first? You know, why can't I put myself first? Or why can't I put something else first? Is that surely just like, just God being selfish? But rather, when you look at it a bit deeper, God calling us and desiring us to put him first in our lives is ultimately out of love for us and for our own good. If God really is the greatest being in existence, if there is nothing like him, if he's the most precious, most valuable thing to ever exist, doesn't it make sense that he should take priority? And secondly, he loves us with a love like no other. So not only is he the most precious thing in the universe, but he also loves us like no other thing can love us in the universe. And thirdly, if he is the only true God, and everything is simply a mere counterfeit, a fake, a mere shadow of the real deal, wouldn't it be wrong of him to encourage us to follow such things? Things that, God, things that God himself knows can't give us the true life that he promises us. 
And if he, and let's be honest, whenever we follow those things other than God, they lead to our own destruction. It would be cruel if anything, if God were to push us towards those things, because actually knowing Him is for our is is the best thing that can happen to us. Um, Francis uh, Francis Chan in his book Crazy Love he explains it this way when talking to a student he says this, I would tell that student that if God is truly the greatest good on this earth would he be loving us if he didn't draw sorry would he be loving us if he didn't draw us toward what is best for us even if that happens to be himself doesn't his courting his luring his pursuing his calling and even threatening demonstrate his love if he didn't do all of that wouldn't we accuse him of being unloving in the end when all things are revealed if someone asks you what the greatest good on this earth is what would you say an epic surf session financial security health meaningful trusting friendships intimacy with your spouse, knowing that you belong, the greatest good on this earth is God, period. God's one goal for us is himself. God gives this command because in following it, we receive God himself and as a result, we receive life. So the question we have to ask ourselves is what are these what are these lesser gods? What are these lesser gods that we can be tempted to follow instead of the true living God? And they can literally be anything. And uh, this isn't just a choice between worshipping the God of the Bible and the God of other religions. It, it literally anything that is not God Himself can be seen and experienced as a lesser God. And this is what the Bible calls an idol. Uh, now, a pastor in the States, Timothy Keller, he gives us some helpful questions in exposing the idols of our heart. The idols that we choose to worship instead of God. So begin to ask yourself these sort of questions. He says this, an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you, you seek to give you what only God can give. Whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. Anything that becomes more fundamental than God to your happiness, meaning in life and identity, that is an idol. So thinking about that, think to yourself even now, what's, is it, what's your idol? Is there an idol? What's the thing or the person in your life that you put above God? And to illustrate this point, I'm going to read to you an encounter that Jesus had with a young man. And I want, I want, I want you to think and, and to tell me, well, let me not to tell me out loud, but to think in your head. How does, how does this young man fail to keep this commandment? And what is the other God that he's put above the true living God? Okay, so this is the text. It says this in Mark chapter 10 and verse 17 to 22. And it says this. And as he was setting out on his journey, 
a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honour your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. What was this young man's God? It was his idol. It was his money. It was his stuff. He put his possessions above God. When Christ came calling for him, he chose instead of following Christ, he chose to treasure his earthly possessions. You see, this man, he had thought that he had kept all of the commandments, but the truth is that he couldn't even get past the first one. And reinforcing this first commandment, God then gives us the second one, which is, extreme, which is closely linked. It says this, Exodus chapter 20 and verse 4 to 5, it says this, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not, you shall not bow to them or serve them. God gets specific and he tells us not to create or make something which we then worship instead of him. And it is easy to mistakenly think that this is no longer an issue today. As we've kind of even looked at, we can easily say to ourselves, well I don't worship idols, I don't have like shrines or statues in my house that I bow down to. But the truth is we're just as guilty. The young ruler we just looked at is a great example, the man enslaved to his possessions, man-made creations which he, which he put in the place of God. But what about us? Think about what are the things, uh, and it can be anything, it can be cars, it can be smartphones, computer games, money, uh, think about anything. Are, are, are these not things that we can easily be guilty of giving more attention to than God, more affection to than God? What do you treasure most? And that is exactly what our third commandment is all about. It is about the value of God. Verse 7 says this, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember, this is still in a case of our, this is all about our relationship with God, how we respond to God. And, his, uh, and this particular commandment, it addresses how we speak about God, specifically how we use his name. And it says here that we are commanded not to use his name in vain. And in the original Hebrew, this word used for vain can be translated as falsehood, 
vanity, uselessness or lying. In essence, as, as, as some translations will say, we are called not to misuse his name. We are not to use his name in a, in a context or an association with something that is not fitting with his character, fitting with his reputation and his worth. And this can include cursing, using his name out of context, speaking ill of him or speaking falsely of God, so like slander, making false accusations against him or inappropriate joking. And we could easily ask, okay, well, why is this so important? Well, firstly, because to do so, it robs God of glory. To, in essence, blaspheme is an attempt to dethrone God. So here's God on his throne. And, is, and when we blaspheme, it's in essence, we essentially try to take him off the throne. It's an attempt to rob him of glory. When we misuse his name, we cheapen the most valuable, most precious thing in existence, God himself. We, we, we in essence make it appear that he isn't valuable when such a statement couldn't be further from the truth. And we could easily argue, well, they're, they're just words, you know. Well, what, what difference does words make? But as the Bible tells us, words are reflection. Words are often a reflection of the heart. Jesus says this in Luke 6 and 45. He says this, The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Jesus once again cuts to the very heart. He says it is from the abundance of our heart that our mouth speaks. And we may excuse it as a slip of the tongue but the truth is if we find ourselves repeatedly speaking ill of God, repeatedly taking his name in vain, cheapening him, grumbling against him. It is evidence that he does not hold great worth in our hearts. We should not be surprised when the world around us cheapens his name or misuses his name. But if we truly treasure Christ, then how can we even begin to look like those who want nothing to do with him? And as I say, when we see this in our lives, it is evidence that something needs to change in our heart. It is evidence that our view of God and our relationship with him, it needs to change, it needs to grow. And that leads us onto our fourth commandment. It says this, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labour and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do sorry, on it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. We see here that God is calling his people to set aside a day of rest, a day that is holy, set apart from the other days of the week. A time to stop working and offer that time to God. 
A day when we rest with God. And have you ever stopped to think that this commandment sits alongside others such as do not murder and do not commit adultery? God places this much importance on Sabbath rest. And we can ask the question, why? And it's ultimately because we need it. God gives this command as a gift for our gain, for our life, for our joy. Mark chapter 2, 27 says this, And he said to them, The Sabbath was made, this is Jesus speaking, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. God created the Sabbath for us. This is the why of keeping the Sabbath. The truth is we need rest. Unlike God, we do not have the strength or energy to keep going without rest. To, draw, to try and do so, it leads to burnout, it leads to despair, it leads to anxiousness, it leads even to depression. In that moment, God calls us to trust him. It is a reminder to ourselves and to the world that we're not God, but rather he is. And to keep the Sabbath is to say, God, I trust you're in control, that the universe doesn't rest on my shoulders, but yours. But then as we rest, we do it with him. And that's the how. God knows that our lives can become so busy. That if we don't make a conscious effort to guard and protect time with him, we will spend it on other less important things. And yes, we should be spending time with Jesus every single day in his word, in prayer with his people. But the Sabbath allows us to spend a longer, more dedicated time with him. So when should we have Sabbath rest? And, and are we even still required to keep it? And it is true that as we go through the New Testament, the New Testament does not command us to observe the Sabbath in the same way that it is commanded in the Old Testament. Right, for example, it was a capital event, a capital offence in the Old Testament, whereas in the New Testament that is no longer the case. Look at what Paul said in his letter in Colossians 2, verse 16 to 17. He says this, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. As Paul clearly says, the Sabbath is a shadow of what is to come. It is a shadow, whereas Jesus is the substance, and the substance belongs to him. One day we will spend the Christian will spend eternity in the presence of God himself and the Sabbath is meant to be a foretaste of that. So yes, we are in some ways no longer obligated to keep the Sabbath in the same way as Israel Israel was, but I would argue for the sake of our health, our joy and even our relationship with God, I believe he calls us to observe some form of Sabbath rest. And yes, it is difficult, and for all of you who know me, I struggle with this as well. 
But this is why I think this is the case. Firstly, the idea of six days of work and one day of rest, it goes right back to creation. Second thing, a reason I think this is because as we looked at already, the purpose of the Sabbath was for us. God made it for us. And could it be that God has given us further freedom in the area of keeping the Sabbath not for the purpose of ignoring it, but for the purpose of experiencing it in an even greater way. So let me, let me say that again. So since the cross, we, yes, we have been given freedom in this area. But could it be that God has given us further freedom in this area of keeping the Sabbath, not for the purpose of ignoring it, but for the purpose of experiencing it in an even greater way. And are you using this freedom for the purpose of knowing God more, for the purpose of enjoying him more and honouring him more, or is it simply temporary earthly benefits? You know, and I think of the disciples. As an example, think of the disciples and how when they were with Jesus, how they were often criticised for not observing the Sabbath in the, way that they thought, in the way the Pharisees thought that they should. But actually, they were observing the true heart of the Sabbath because they were spending time with Jesus as they did it. And even, and, and, and even when Jesus heals people on the Sabbath, you know, we see that he's using that freedom, to, that freedom, that, that authority he has over the Sabbath for, the great, for greater good, for the purposes of God. And it appears that the Pharisees completely missed the whole point of the Sabbath. But then on the flip side, if we completely ignore that call, we are also completely missing the point and the blessing of the Sabbath. And for example, let's, let's, look, let's take the when of the subject. When should we have a Sabbath rest? At this point in Israel's history, the Sabbath was a Saturday, the last day of the week. But after Jesus rose again, the early church chose to set aside Sunday. Sunday became their day of rest and gathering of the church for worship because Jesus had risen again on Sunday. And it appears that parts of the church were still divided over this issue, right? So you're going to kind of, the people from the Jewish background are like, but we've always had Sabbath on Saturday and then you kind of have these new Christians whether it be Jews becoming Christians or Gentiles who are beginning to celebrate the Sabbath on a Sunday and, and, I, and I think Paul addresses this in Romans although it doesn't specifically say it's, he's talking about the Sabbath it, I think it kind of alludes to that so he's, either, he's, either, he's certainly either talking about the Sabbath or some sort of kind of festival but basically how we treat days it says this in Romans 14 5 to 6, it says this, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day, observes it in honour of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honour of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honour of the Lord and gives thanks to God. And that's Romans 14, 5-6. Paul says, 
that the issue is not so much the day, but the heart behind the day. That the one who observes the day observes it in honour of the Lord. And my encouragement to you would be to have one day a week which is set aside. A day which is spent resting with God and worshipping with his people. And maybe because of work commitments it can't be Sunday, then make it another day. And I personally think it makes sense, personally I think it makes sense to, to make it a Sunday because that's the majority, that's the day when the majority of people are off. So if it's possible then great, but if, if it really can't be Sunday, then, then make another day, make time. For example, most pastors who work on a Sunday, Sunday can be their busy, it's essentially the busiest day of the week for them usually. Um, and therefore, it is usually healthy and wise for a pastor to set aside another day or another part of a day that is truly Sabbath rest with God. And pray about it. Ask the Lord to show you, ask the Lord to guide you, ask the Lord to convict you. And yes, it will mean sacrifice. It will mean maybe saying no to some commitments or maybe turn down certain opportunities because we treasure and see the importance that time with Christ and with his people is. And the truth is we, we need it. So if it cannot be Sunday, then make it another day, a, a time in which you guard and you say, man, I'm going to try and guard this time as much as I can because I know that if I don't, just life, <laughs> you, know, you know how life is. If you don't set about maybe making a return of things, you know, life just kind of pass you by. There's always more things to do. There's always more things to be involved in. And it can easily, we can easily end up not investing time in the most important things. I personally have been, I've been really blessed personally in my own life by my parents observing Sundays. Sundays was always set aside for church. And I grew up with that mentality. That, that time was protected and it was guarded. It was like, Sunday, we go to church. It's, there's, there's no debate, it's, we go to church. And, and I loved how they guarded that time. And yes, it meant that we couldn't join a Sunday football team. It meant that we maybe missed a particular part, kids' party or, I don't know, some kids' event that kids do, I don't know. But as I look back, I can't remember what I did as a kid. Can anybody remember what I did as a kid? But as I, you know, what I can remember as I look back is what I gained from that time was so worth it. And as I look back now, I wouldn't trade any of that. It impacted me for all eternity. The sacrifice, the sacrifice if you can even call it a sacrifice, was worth it. Uh, and I think when we do so, it is an amazing witness to the world around us. Let's give you an example. Imagine a boss who owns a shop and he chooses, imagine if this boss, a Christian boss, chooses to be closed on a Sunday. So it would allow his workers to rest and go to church. In that moment, he says, I trust God to provide. I'm more concerned with honouring and treasuring him than making more money. And whenever I think of this event, well, whenever I think of the subject of the Sabbath, and I'm pretty sure most people have heard this guy, it often reminds me of a, a Christian athlete, a missionary, a guy called Eric Liddell. And there was a film years ago, 
um, or about his life called Chariots of Fire and about the time when he competed in the Olympics. And, but let me just briefly read this, um, which kind of just sums up his life and, and the conviction that he had about the Sabbath and that what choices that made him to make in his life. And it says this, The crack of the starter gun echoed through the stadium on the hot Friday evening in July of 1924. Eric Little sprinted forward in his u- unusual running style, his head thrown back, his arms waving at his side, his feet barely touching the track as he ran. No one, not even Eric himself, thought he had a chance of winning the 400 metre race. But Eric was determined to do his best. Eric Little was Scotland's fastest sprinter. He was their hero. and He had won every 100 metre race he had run since early in his running career. His quick speed earned him a spot on the 100 metre British Olympic team. And however, Eric Little had announced to his country that he could not run in the Olympic 100 metre race because the finals were scheduled on a Sunday. Sunday was a day of worship and rest for Eric and he would not even run if he were his country's only hope of winning an Olympic gold medal And this made the Scottish people, as you can imagine, very upset. They wrote bad things about him in the newspapers and some people even called him a traitor. But Eric stood firm. He had never run on Sunday and never would, not even for an Olympic gold medal. With very little time remaining before the Olympics began, Eric trained and qualified for another race that was not scheduled on a Sunday. Eric knew his chances of winning the 400 metre race were slim because of two of the runners in his race, had already set world record times. In addition, on the day of the race, Eric was assigned the worst lane. But a note in his pocket encouraged him. The team trainer had given it to him before he left his hotel room, and it read, He who honours him, he will honour. Speaking of God, he who honours him, God will honour. And Little knew his decision not to run on Sunday was to honour God. As Eric rounded the turn on the track where all the runners usually come together, he expected to see the world record holders ahead of him, but he was there alone. He threw his head back even more than usual and pumped his legs as fast as he could as Eric crossed the finish line first, winning the gold medal for the 400 metre race. In that year as well, he also went on to, to race in the 200 metres and also picked up another medal, which I think was a bronze. Um, and it is amazing and inspiring, that kind of story. And the question is, is the Lord asking you to make such a sacrifice as, as Eric did? I don't know. But if he is calling you to do so whatever that sacrifice may be. Maybe it isn't setting aside Sunday, maybe it's setting aside another day, but whatever day it is, it is is going to require sacrifice. It is going to require guarding that time. But But if he is calling you to do so, that which you gain far outweighs that which you lose. 
So my challenge to you this week is set aside in time to pray and ask the Lord, okay, Lord, how can I best honour you and enjoy you more in the area of the Sabbath rest? And that's the whole purpose of the Sabbath. It is that vertical relationship again. It is us and God. It is not simply just us resting from work, but rather resting from work with God. I've been playing... Um, some music recently with a uh, with a, a Christian, another Christian guy um, who goes to um, another church more central to London, and he's actually a firefighter. And he was kind of telling me a bit about, um, you know, as because you are a firefighter, you, your shift completely, you know, it constantly rotates, you know. But it's been encouraging even hearing how he tries to when he whenever he gets a free Sunday, he's there and he's invested in his church. You know, and he tries to guard that time. And then in, in, in other moments, I'm sure when he can't make those time, he seeks to, to have that time with the Lord somewhere else. As I say, we have been given, we are, yes, no longer, in, when it comes to the Sabbath, under maybe the same command in the same way that the Israelites are. We do perhaps have a greater freedom than they are. But the, the truth is, how are you using that freedom? Um, will you use it to take full advantage of what God has created for us or will we choose to ignore it? So in closing, and so far we've looked at four commandments. We're just going to, look, we're going to leave it there today. We'll look at the other five next week. And I think if we're truly honest, it's, uh, well, it's pretty clear to say we've already broken some, right? And we can even go through some of the ones maybe we even be struggling with right now and be like, hey Lord, I really need your help to do this one because... I'm struggling with this. And we're all guilty of failing to keep the law. And as we read earlier, verse 7, where it says, You shall not take the Lord, sorry, the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. If we measure our lives against this standard, we find ourselves guilty before God. And it's not just for this command, but it's, it's for all of them. I hope you're beginning to see that as amazing and as life-giving as these commands were intended to be, we constantly find ourselves breaking them. And it was not too long that the Israelites came to the same conclusion, because only a few chapters later, while Moses is up the mountain with God, Receiving the rest of the law, the people enter into sin. And then think about what all that the people have seen so far. They've seen God set them free from slavery. They've seen God destroy their enemy that had them in bondage for so long. They've then seen God provide for them in the desert in a miraculous way through manna and through water from a rock. And they even, they've even seen God in all his might and all his power in this in this smoke and thunder and trumpets on this mountain, the people of Israel have seen all these things. And yet we read this takes place in verse 1 of Exodus 32. It says this, When the people saw that Moses delayed to come from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to him, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron, and he received the gold from their hand 
and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Isn't it crazy how the people would result to that, to making this calf, and then they, they would say that this calf was what got them out of Egypt. We see that they have, they have broken the first two commandments already. The Ten Commandments reveal the truth that we are broken sinners in need of saving. Just like the Israelites, we've also broken the law. Just like Israel, we find ourselves guilty. And although they had been set free from slavery in Egypt, it appears that they were still enslaved. But they were enslaved to something much deeper, much more destructive, and that was sin. If the story ended there for the Israelites, not only they, but we ourselves would be without hope. But, by God's grace, the story doesn't end there. Many years later, God would once again descend to earth and meet with his people. But this time it would be through a man. Unlike us, this man would succeed where we failed. He would perfectly keep the law that we never could. God would once again speak from a mountain, but this time it would be the mountain of Golgotha as this man was stripped naked and nailed to a cross. And Father, forgive them, would be his cry as he died in our place, taking our punishment that we deserve for every single command that we have broken. And then he would rise again on the third day and offer us the gift of life and his name is Jesus. And it is through faith in him that we can be forgiven. Through Jesus we are forgiven for every time we break the law. But not only that, I think we, we have an even greater advantage than the Israelites because not only... Not only are we forgiven every time we break the law, but God himself gives us his spirit, himself living inside of us, changing us, enabling us to actually begin to keep the law. Through Jesus, we are set free to live free. Through Jesus, we are set free from the slavery of sin so that we can now begin to live free and embrace his law and love his law. No longer is it a case of seeing how much can I get away with, but now it's a case of how much can I please him. And that is all done through Jesus Christ. So as you leave today, I want you to begin to think of those four commandments, those four things in relationship, in, in, and it's all about our relationship with Christ. And begin to ask yourself the question of, of this, have I put another God before Jesus? Is there something above Jesus in my life? 
And then the second thing, have I made an idol? Have I myself created and bowing down to something man made instead of trusting Jesus? And the third thing, am I misusing his name? Am I cheapening him? And thirdly, am I seeking to spend time with him? And am I seeking to guard that time? Am I, do I have moments where I have Sabbath rest with him and with his people? So take time this week to pray into those things, to think about those things, and then as God opens your eyes to those things, to areas which need change, you come before him and be like, Lord, thank you for revealing this to me, and now change me. Coming back to the the young man, the young ruler, in the account that we read in Mark's account, it notes this one thing which the other accounts don't note, which is this, that Jesus loved him. I, I love how it says that, it says, Jesus loved him. Jesus loved this young man. He loved, he, he loved this young man enough to challenge him in his sin. To say, hey, you need to leave this to follow me. And I believe Jesus does the same with us. He exposes our sin. And the question is, in those moments where our sin is exposed for what it is, will we then choose to turn to him and embrace him and embrace the forgiveness, but then also him changing us and making us more like him? Or will we, like the young man, turn away sorrowful? When he exposes our sin, when he exposes our idols, where he exposes the areas that need to change, will we then turn to him and receive life, the life that unfortunately that young man missed out on? So remember, Jesus has set us free to live free. Let us close by praying together. Father, we want to thank you for your word. And Lord, we pray that you would stir up within us a heart that desires to please you. A heart that loves your laws, it loves your word, it loves your commands because it is a heart that ultimately understands that these commands lead to life. That you have given these commands for for our benefit, Lord. And Lord, we want to say, we want to thank you, Lord, that you offer us forgiveness when we fail. We confess to you, Lord, we fail at these things. Lord, we fail at putting you first in our lives. We fail at making other things more important and Lord, we, we fail when we use your name in vain and we fail when we, when, we, when, we, when we allow the busyness of life to get ahead of us where we try to become God ourselves instead of resting with you, resting in you and trusting you. So Lord, I pray that you would change, expose these areas and then change these areas in our lives for the, sake, for, for, for the sake of us knowing you more, for the sake of us loving you more, for the sake of us enjoying you more. And all these things were meant to lead to give us life, just as much as they were meant to give the Israelites life. Lord. And Lord, we thank you that you sent Jesus to die for us, so that we could be forgiven when we fail to keep the law, but then also so we could be changed, so that we could keep the law. So Father, this is our prayer, that you would change us, Lord. 
Change us in these er- the areas that need changing, Lord, that we would enjoy you more, that we would love you more, that we would experience the true life and freedom that you offer us, Jesus. This is our prayer tonight. In your name, Father, we pray. Amen.